Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. It's Yochi here with Jen and with Zach. And we're in this amazing moment where a former FBI director, Bob Mueller, wants to sit down and interview a sitting U.S. President Donald Trump about whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. But there's one problem. At least for now, Trump says there's no need for them to talk because... There has been no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russians or Trump and Russians. No collusion. So we're going to get into that in a second because it's very possible that Donald Trump himself did not collude, even if people in his campaign did. But we want to go in a slightly different direction, which is there's a part of the Mueller probe that gets less attention than the Russian collusion part, which is obstruction of justice. Whether Trump may have broken the law by trying to stop the probe as compared to whether Trump may have broken the law by colluding with Russia. Zach, you had a long piece about this um, on the website this week, on Vox.com this week. And let's dive into it a little bit. Why would the case for obstruction, which I think people know less about, be stronger than the case for collusion? So I spoke to a, a number of different lawyers, and the argument that they made is is actually a little simpler than you might think, given that it's legal stuff. It's that if the president corruptly, meaning with the intent to do something wrong, interferes with the workings of justice, including an investigation— then that is obstruction of justice. And that can be true even if the president was doing something that would otherwise be legal. The reason that's important is because, as we all remember, President Trump fired FBI Director James Comey, and he did it, as he admitted on multiple different occasions, because he didn't like the Russia probe. And he thought the Russia probe, as he told the Russian ambassador and foreign minister, was putting great pressure on him. That according to some lawyers, already constitutes an admission of obstruction of justice. Now, others think it's more complicated than that. But the point is that the president has established that he did something to interfere with the Russia investigation and arguably was doing it to protect himself and his family from criminal charges. And that, if it were to be proven, would be obstruction. Right. And I think it's it's important to point out when we're talking about, you know, the potential for Trump being interviewed here, um, the there remains kind of a question of what exactly Mueller would be wanting to get out of such an such an interview. Because um, like you said, the, the case for obstruction, again, just to be clear, we don't know. There's no official confirmation from the probe as there wouldn't be. Um, they don't comment on active investigations as, as a policy. Um, so we don't know for a fact uh, that they are pursuing an obstruction of justice case. However, all the evidence, the types of subpoenas they've been using, the types of interviews they've been requesting things like that suggests pretty strongly that that's a direction that the Mueller uh, investigation is going. But, you know, Zach, like you said, so much of this stuff is public record. You know, he Trump was on Lester Holt's show and did an interview and openly said, yeah, I, I fired Jim Comey in part because of this Russia investigation, you know. So the question would be, so what exactly is Mueller trying to do in this interview, right? Like he's not trying to necessarily get facts and figure this stuff out because it's already there. So a lot of uh, lawyers have been saying that it's essentially to kind of judge his demeanor, to kind of hold him to the various explanations and kind of try to, in some ways, kind of get him to get his story straight. And the problem is that Trump is not super great at keeping his story straight at times. So if he were to be testifying um, under oath, if he were deposed or just an interview with, with the Mueller probe, um, you know, one-on-one face-to-face, there's a high potential that he could possibly say something that could be incriminating or he could be caught lying, things like that. So it's it's really risky for Trump's lawyers. I mean, I'm old enough to remember back when Bill Clinton, during the impeachment, that the case that led to the impeachment, the investigation by Ken Starr. That was one of my first political memories, watching the impeachment vote. If you remember also, the videotape of his interview with the FBI was released, 
which was an amazing thing to watch because you, you don't see the FBI agents, but you hear them, and then you see Bill Clinton on camera responding. And some of what he said in that interview is later what became part of the basis for the impeachment case. There's no chance that the White House would allow Donald Trump to be videotaped during this interview. They're trying to make it maybe a written thing where Mueller puts questions in writing and then Trump responds in writing so they can make sure he doesn't say anything bad. But it is amazing because so much in the law requires establishing intent, not just here, but you know, murder versus manslaughter. Libel. Trump wants to change the libel laws, but you have to say it's knowingly false. And so, like, knowing what's in a person's mind is where oftentimes cases go up on the shoals. But as with so many other things, Twitter allows us to know what's on Donald Trump's mind. And that's basically a gift to Bob Mueller. Yeah, Trump, he says these things in interviews. He says them to the Russian ambassador. He talks about how the Russia investigation is fake and a witch hunt on Twitter, right? It's just, it's over and over again. And the guy can't help himself to a certain degree. And that's why, and I, and I want to emphasize this, we don't know what evidence Bob Mueller has on collusion. For all we know, he has a tape of Donald Trump calling Vladimir Putin and saying, this plot to steal the election went great. Congrats. I don't think that's true, but it's like within the realm of possibility. But we don't know that. For all we know, there was no connection. Everything so far has just established connections between Trump's team and the Russians, not Trump himself, or even that Trump knew that his team was reaching out to the Russians. We, we, don't, we don't know that. What we do know is what Trump has stated publicly. And what he's stated and done publicly is on the obstruction charges versus the collusion charge, quite damning. And I think, yeah, I'm just kind of going back to the the point that you made, Yelkley, about Trump's lawyers wanting to have maybe written answers, right? I can't imagine Bob Mueller going for that because the entire point is, like I said, to literally sit down and question Trump and to, you know, kind of repeat questions over and over, see if the story changes, to kind of, you know, ask him, see his demeanor, um, versus, you know, having his lawyers dot all the I's and cross all the T's and make sure that he didn't say anything even remotely questionable. Um, so I can't imagine that he would go for that. And the problem is that he can subpoena the president. Like, he can force him to at least come to a court to testify. Now, Trump could plead the fifth and say, you know, I, I don't want to testify against myself, um, out of you know, fear of self-incrimination. That is a legal argument. That's fine, right? But politically, that would look really questionable, right? The president saying, I'm not going to answer your questions on this massive scandal because I might incriminate myself in something illegal. Again, legally, you're not supposed to, you know, courts are not supposed to take that as, you know, admission of guilt or anything like that. That's all well and good. When it comes to the court of public opinion and when it comes to, you know, politics, it's a whole different story. Although it is also worth noting that there's another kind of bigger question legally, which is if Bob Mueller decides I've got enough evidence to indict and manages to persuade his boss, which would be the next step, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, we have enough evidence to indict. And Rosenstein says, by some miracle, yes, go ahead and indict. It's not clear legally if you can actually indict nor press charges against a sitting president. There are many people, you know, Zach, you've written about this, many people, a lot of people are saying that you, that you can't, right. but there is an argument that you can but it's interesting, right? Because you have one, what is he going to find? And as, you know, Jen, to your point, Mueller is a chess master. Like, we right. don't know because he just, like, hear nothing. And then suddenly we have a guilty plea from someone we've never heard of, like George Papadopoulos. We hear not a whole lot. And suddenly there's the guilty plea from Mike Flynn. So, agreed. We don't know what exactly what he has. But if we play it out, if we play out that he believes he has a stronger obstruction case and he has better evidence for it and he persuades Rod Rosenstein to indict— then the question becomes, legally, can you do it? Right. Um, so the issue here centers around Article 2 of the Constitution, which is the one establishing the president's powers. The argument constitutionally 
is that the president can't be indicted because if the president were to have to deal with a criminal charge, it would interfere with his ability to execute Article II powers. If you're fighting the threat of imprisonment, that's your number one priority as any person. So you just can't deal with it. This is the stated policy of the Department of Justice. It's been uh, stated, written out in a policy memo for quite some time now. Constitutional lawyers think that it's arguable. Some of them, others agree with the memo, whatever. The point is right now they would have to overturn existing Department of Justice policy to go down the road that you were just talking about, Yoki, to even raise the constitutional question in a court for a court to decide. So I think, and most people I've talked to think, they wouldn't do that. That's really risky to try to base your entire case against the president on a legal theory that the Department of Justice currently thinks is wrong. That's why I think it's important to point out that, you know, again— we don't have any official confirmation that they are pursuing a case of obstruction of justice against the president. Right. For that reason well, that people well, wait, cite— wait, wait, hold on. We did hear—the New York Times reported that the recent investigation into Jeff Sessions' recusal, right, which is a piece that they published last week, um, that that came out of Mueller investigating obstruction specifically. Like, this is what Michael Schmidt in the Times reported straight up, that they're, they right. are investigating. But there's no official confirmation on the record from— the, okay, the Mueller okay, probe. Okay, but, but but it goes to the point. I mean, there there are smart lawyers who have raised the question that you know maybe because of that legal argument um, that you just laid out that maybe Mueller wouldn't pursue that sort of thing. There's also another issue that I think it's important to talk about, which is the role of Rod Rosenstein in a potential uh, obstruction of justice case. So he has said publicly um, several times that if he were to become in any way involved in this investigation. Uh, that he would recuse himself in the same way that Jeff Sessions did. And there is the case to be made that if the obstruction of justice case revolves around the firing of Jim Comey, Rod Rosenstein played a very direct role in that. He was one of the two, the other being Jeff Sessions, who wrote the memo, apparently at the president's request, um, laying out the case for firing Comey and and suggesting that that Trump fire Comey. Um, And then when Trump did, he cited that memo saying, you know, they told me to do this. So the question is, if... The Mueller probe, if Mueller is pursuing a case of obstruction of justice against the president, there remains to be seen, why hasn't Rosenstein recused himself? Now, there are many reasons why. Maybe he has and we don't know, right? Maybe uh, he doesn't want to jeopardize the Mueller probe. Um, Maybe that's not part of it. It, There are lots of reasons, but it is an interesting piece of that. It's also just with Mueller— this is still very early stage, right? Like Trump keeps saying, based on his lawyers, that this is going to be resolved soon— and it's not, right? We're talking very likely months, if not another year, maybe longer, till all of this is done, in part because there's so many legal things swirling. And it's worth, I think, talking briefly about Rosenstein because there's this school of thought, and it's a question we, we get, and it's a good one, what happens if Trump fires Mueller? Which is a fair question, except he doesn't need to fire Mueller to derail or stop the Mueller probe. One way is you fire Rod Rosenstein and put in someone who is willing, because Rod Rosenstein right now has control over the probe to sort of muzzle it. The other is you fire Jeff Sessions and put an attorney general who is not recused, who thus himself has better control over the probe. Well, wait, I want to be clear on the pathway here because he can't fire Mueller. It's not just that that's not the only way. It's that Trump literally does not have the power to fire Mueller on his own. Right. He would need Rosenstein. Right. And yeah, that's a fair point. And if not Rosenstein, then Rachel Brand is the one behind him. And if not Rachel Brand, down, down, down. That's when you get sort of back to Watergate era things where people kept quitting rather than do the firing. You'll find somebody. Right, there'll be somebody craven enough at some point who will say, Mr. President, yep, fire Bob Mueller. But I personally don't think that's likely. I mean, I think he has so many other ways, at least for now, if he wants to derail it, to derail it. But it's a question going forward for the rest of the year, right? Like one question is, 
Who gets indicted next? It does seem like Jared Kushner may be the next person indicted. Another, as, we're t- as we've been talking about, is isn't an obstruction case rather than collusion. And then hanging over all of it to a degree is who leads the investigation? Is Mueller pushed out? Is Rosenstein pushed out? Is Sessions pushed out? The reason I mention all of this is at the same time as all of this is happening in terms of Mueller interviewing Trump, we're seeing this incredibly well-coordinated attack on Bob Mueller, on Rosenstein, on Jeff Sessions by the conservative media who are saying, basically, Mueller is a Democratic plant. He's a Democratic operative too close to Comey. Rosenstein's a Democrat, even though he's not. So fire them all. So and I that's think, amazing. I think that's actually a really important point because, you know, a lot of people have said, well, okay, yeah, you know, Trump could fire Sessions and try to put in someone in place who wouldn't be recused and they could therefore end the Mueller probe um, or, you know, same same deal with Rod Rosenstein. Um, people come back and say, well, they both of those positions need Senate confirmation, right? So that's kind of like the check on that, right? Like the the Senate would have to approve whoever Trump put in. The catch to that is that Republicans are in control of the Senate and would probably very likely approve whoever. No, I, I don't agree. Uh, and the reason why is that this this pressure that you're seeing that you've both discussed comes from the House, right? Principally, it's backbenchers and really, really hard right Tea Party types to use 2012 parlance. You don't think the, um, the Senate would confirm? I think that the Senate would block a crony. I think that you have enough people, enough Republicans in the Senate who actually think that this is important. And you only need two at this point, right? Because of the Republicans' loss in Alabama, the margin is 51-49. And that's that's really narrow. And so if you lose two moderate Republicans, and you they have lost moderate Republicans before on crucial votes— then and that's not to say anything about any of the other Republicans who have expressed concerns about Russia in the past. They lose. A fun thing to be able to say is that Zach radiates optimism about the patriotism slash honesty or integrity about the Republican majority in the Senate, which I certainly don't share. I am a cynic as well. In part because there was a moment not long ago where Chuck Grassley, who would lead the committee that would have to approve or not approve a Trump attorney general nomination, said, basically, I'm not going to do it. You had legislation pending designed to protect Bob Mueller, pushed by people like Lindsey Graham. And then suddenly that all disappeared. Those people who said basically they would defend Bob Mueller are no longer saying that. Those people are no longer saying they wouldn't hold a confirmation hearing for a replacement. Instead, it isn't just in the House. You're hearing Senate voices too. If not say directly he's a plant, who are saying appoint a new special counsel, that Bob Mueller is tainted, that the Hillary investigation should be reopened. You're hearing that in the Senate too. And that means to me, you're right. In the math, you do know you can only lose two. But this moment in time where people were willing to protect Bob Mueller, that's past. That's the only reason why I think this could happen. I guess I think that that is right when it comes to the party as a whole, wrong when it comes to individual members who have a lot more discretion in the Senate than they do in the House. I mean, this is all hypothetical. Right, of course. Again, like this is assuming Trump goes this route, right? So far, he and his lawyers have said over and over it, it is important to point that out, that the lawyers have said over and over and over, we are cooperating with the Mueller probe. The president has no intention of firing, you know, or, or trying to fire Rosenstein or anyone going about this. Um, they've gotten to the point that they're actually, like, irritated that journalists keep asking the question. They're like, we've said it over and over. He's not going to do this. He's cooperating. Um, now, again, that's entirely possible. He could change his mind overnight and, and go about this. But I, I do think it's important to point that out that officially they've said over and over, and he has said that he's cooperating. Can, can, can we and, zoom out and talk about how crazy this is, this conversation? Just, it's bizarre, right? So when Richard Nixon was credibly accused of 
similar things. Obstruction of justice was the first bill against Nixon in the impeachment hearings. Nixon, similarly to what Russia did, stole documents from his political opponents for political gain, right? That was the whole Watergate scandal. He lost support of his party on the whole, right? There was clearly the impeachment vote was going to succeed before he resigned. Trump See, there's there's very strong evidence that he committed obstruction of justice. There's also very good evidence that people on his team involved were involved in some kind of scheme with Russia. Some thing that's actually in some ways worse than Watergate because it involved coordinating with a hostile foreign power rather than just doing stuff on your own to suborn the political process. And that Trump, at the very least, was negligent extremely negligent in supervising these people and then appointed some of them to high positions, some of whom remain in high positions. I mean, one thing that comes through, and I read it last night on on Kindle about Fire and Fury, the Michael Wolff book that is being both talked about constantly and and hammered constantly. But one thing that comes through pretty clearly is, on the one hand, Trump, as we all know, comes often it is semi-literate, doesn't pay attention to details, doesn't follow briefings. It's one reason that I personally think the odds are that he personally did not directly collude. I just don't think he cared enough about the details. But his aides come across as sleazy beyond words. So the reason why I think we may see the possible firing of, of Mueller or of Rosenstein, if it comes, isn't necessarily Trump. It's if they indict Jared Kushner, if they indict Donald Trump Jr. I mean, there's that quote in the book that we've all, all seen where Steve Bannon refers to Trump Jr. as having basically been treasonous and says he would crack um, under questioning. And so that's what's interesting. Like if the next step here and I think it's a plausible next step, is Jared Kushner is indicted because of lying, because of colluding with Russia, because he talked to them and didn't acknowledge it, or Donald Trump Jr. is indicted. Does that get to a place where Donald Trump says, you didn't get me, but you're trying to get my family, we're done? Right, I think that's my point. It's just, it's crazy. It's just, it's crazy that this is a partisan issue. The idea that the, a threat to the objectivity of the American legal system, a threat to the independence of the American electoral system, the foundation of American democracy, is an issue that is dividing along partisan lines, that Republicans aren't willing to stand for this sort of thing, and that, that we're talking about margins in the Senate as opposed to everybody seeing this as a credible issue that needs to be looked at, that is nuts. That is nuts. Right. I agree. I mean, it's outrageous, I think, for another reason, which is there was this moment where you hear people say, I'm putting country over party, right? That was the phrase that was occasionally used. You're not seeing many people putting country over party. And you did for a little while. You had like, again, Chuck Rassley say, basically, I'm not going to help you fire Jeff Sessions. But those voices have disappeared. Now, if anything, you're hearing people say, I'm putting party over country at all costs. Well, they got a tax bill through, right? So part of it, honestly, is, uh, as I see it, is you know, Trump will stay as long as he remains useful to the GOP, right, to the leadership uh, in in Congress. And the tax bill at least was a big win for Republicans, theoretically. Um, So, you know, they got that. I feel like that probably bought Trump some time, honestly, with the Hill. Um, I do think it's important to kind of point out, though, you know, we talk about collusion and and obstruction of justice. There are other ways that Trump could end up getting, you know, on the hook for for questionable legal activity through his business dealings, right? And I think that's a potential way that we could also see him wanting to go after the Mueller probe. Or if Kushner is indicted over something related to businesses and money laundering or, you know, questionable financial transactions that could come out of this. Trump has said before, you know, I, I don't want them going after, you know, looking into my finances. This probe is about the Russia investigation. It should stay there. Um, a lot of Republicans have said the same thing. So, you know, like we saw with with the Clinton investigation, with like we saw with the uh, Ken Starr investigation, 
um, you know, things can come out of these investigations that are not necessarily directly related to what they were initially about. So that's another option that could, you know, outside of obstruction of justice, outside of Russia collusion, Trump is a businessman. He has, you know, thousands of business transactions with overseas deals, some including people probably connected to Russia. So that could also be an issue. And that's, I think, if something were to come out of that, I think Trump would probably be more likely to go after Mueller. So I'd like to close just with kind of reminding everyone, because occasionally, even as the journalists write about it, it's hard, of what it is we have seen up till now, right? We have seen multiple Trump aides lie about their contacts with Russia. We have seen two of them, one a campaign manager, one his former national security advisor, plead guilty. You had a low-level campaign aide and the former national security advisor plead guilty. You have two former aides, including the campaign manager, who have been charged. Looking forward, we have these massive questions, which we'll talk about over the course of the year, doubtlessly. Is Mueller fired? Is Rosenstein fired? Is Sessions fired? Is Trump indicted? Can Trump be indicted? Is Jared Kushner indicted? And it, it is worth noting, and we'll do this both on the website and on the podcast, there are multiple strands happening with this giant cast of players. And it isn't just, and this is where I think I want to close, it isn't just Trump-Russia. It is more than Trump. It is more than Russia. We'll talk a lot about that on the site and on the podcast over the course, doubtlessly, over the months and weeks to come. So here we are at the beginning of 2018. We've got resolutions about going to the gym more, about losing weight, about being better humans in every possible way. There's also a way to try to learn new things, try to get smarter, to try to get sharper. It's a resolution, actually, that you can keep. A really good way to do that is by watching and listening to The Great Courses Plus. It's a way of finding interesting information about people, about places, about ideas, about virtually anything in virtually any category. And there's unlimited access to very literally thousands of topics. Here's one modern political tradition. And this is a look at the way political theorists over the last couple of centuries have looked at how a state is governed. They look at fundamental notions like freedom and rights and how you balance them. And if that sounds familiar, that's because that's a debate we're having right now here in the U.S. It's a debate happening around the world. And this is a way of better understanding that debate. You can watch from any TV, from your laptop, from your tablet, from your smartphone, or you could listen from the Great Courses Plus app. So start off the year right by signing up for the Great Courses Plus. Find a resolution that you can actually keep when the new year gets going. And as one of our listeners will get a free trial to enjoy it all, but you need to get it by going to a special URL. So to get that free trial, you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. So for us for this week, we're going to Israel and more specifically to a car in Israel and more specifically to a car in Israel containing the son of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, some of his friends who are rich and seem very sleazy, an Israeli government-provided bodyguard and driver. And we're going to it because of this conversation in Hebrew. We'll play you just a bit of it. So what you're hearing there amidst the laughter and sort of sleaziness, if you listen to the whole thing, is the son of Netanyahu saying to a rich son of an Israeli oligarch, having just left a strip club, that they shouldn't fight over whether they paid enough money to each other at the strip club, because, and this is the key point, he's saying, my father, the prime minister of Israel, gave your father, who is an oil and gas tycoon, a natural gas tycoon specifically, billions of dollars in sort of shady business dealings approved by the Israeli government. So therefore, don't bother me over $115 that we could have paid or not paid to a stripper. And so there's something inherently funny about drunk sons of the prime minister of Israel and oligarchs talking about strippers and how much they paid or didn't pay. And then there's also the not funny part, which is 
there's a core corruption question, and it's illustrated by this. Right. So the driver recorded this. Uh, we don't know why, but according to his lawyer, he did record it. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu and Yair Netanyahu is just the name of the son, um, have both kind of called this illegal wiretapping. But you have them, the, these young men, just disgustingly kind of joking around about buying whores. They're literally using like vulgar language. They're talking about, did you get the Asian hookers? We should get the Asian girls. At one point, Yair Netanyahu says that he's going to offer his girlfriend to his buddies to pay off some of his debts. It's just disgusting behavior. And, you know, at some point in the conversation, they actually openly say, oh, God, we're screwed if this ever gets out. I hope this never gets out that we're saying this <laughs> Congrats, boys. Yeah, I think at which point the driver was like, cha-ching, <laughs> I'm payday, right? But I think more broadly, you know, there is the corruption question, but there's also the political kind of spectacle question. So, you know, Bibi Netanyahu has kind of put his family and his son as part of that, as tried to kind of put them forward this like family values. They, you know, they spend time together on the weekends doing, you know, religious things. And, you know, he said, I, I raised my children and I raised my son to respect women, clearly. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, there's this disgusting kind of behavior, openly joking about corruption. I mean, it's just a staggering kind of, not that anyone necessarily thought that Yair Netanyahu was a really stand-up guy before this, and we could talk about that as well. He's kind of been in the spotlight a few times, but nothing this really egregious. Well, so the, the sort of big picture of the situation is that Netanyahu is in decent political shape on substantive political issues in the sense like the big things when you think about Israel, like relationship between religious Jews and secular Jews or the conflict with the Palestinians or broader foreign policy. He's pretty popular relatively on those fronts. Uh, his real Achilles heel is corruption in his family specifically. So before this tape came out, there were persistent theories that his wife, Sarah Netanyahu, was about to be indicted uh, for essentially embezzling government money to throw parties. There's also been persistent reports that Netanyahu would be indicted uh, specifically for accepting luxury gifts from rich people. One of the rich people, a father of one of the people in the car. Uh, in the car. Right. So this whole thing, this tape which just came out, cements this perception that the Netanyahu family is they front all morally, as Jen was describing, even passing a law saying that it's harder for businesses to stay open on Shabbat, the Jewish Sabbath. This was all happening on Friday night, right? right? Like they, the whole they, they thing. Found, turns out strip clubs are open and and they found them. Yeah, it, it, just the whole thing devastates their, their self-image and adds another blow to their political image on the issue that he is weakest on. We should say that, just to, to make it clear, the conversation that was recorded took place in 2015. So this isn't like it happened last week, just to right. be clear. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. But I think that part of the reason why there's this uproar is because it, it came out now while Netanyahu was pushing this law. Right. But there's a second piece of it, which is Netanyahu has been pushing to the disagreement of the Israeli high court, to the disagreement of much of the Israeli parliament, to the disagreement of all of the Israeli environmental movement to not allow for the development of a natural gas field called Leviathan. That field is going to be developed by the father of one of the people in the car. And so when there's that moment where Netanyahu's son says, my father just got your father $20 billion, that's what they're, 20 billion shekel more accurately, that's what they're referring to. They're referring to the development of a gas field that Bibi is pushing through that would benefit this other guy's dad. And what you're hearing in this, and I think part of the reason also why there's so much uproar about it, we were listening yesterday to Israeli news broadcasts where the broadcaster kept saying kind of portentously, 
and this is a driver and security guard provided by the Israeli government. And there's outrage over that too. He gets a bodyguard not to drive him from strip club to strip club. It's to keep him safe. Instead, he's sort of joking to the driver, find us a strip club that's open, use ways to get us there. They also joke about possibly killing the bodyguard if it gets out. There's at one point where they're like, oh, we're going to have to off this guy if he quits because uh, he overheard this. And they're like, ha, 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 funny. I mean, the other part of this that we were talking about yesterday because it, it's just so staggering. Uh, Julian, our producer, he used the word accurately, tsuris, if we're going Yiddish for a second. Yair Netanyahu What does is that not, word mean? Yeah, you're going to have to it, explain that for the yeah, audience. Service means like grief. Like he's causing grief to his parents by doing what he does and talks about. And, you know, Zach, we were talking about this yesterday when we were preparing for the show. This is not the first time that Yair Netanyahu has done something that is either sleazy, if you're going to be honest, or questionable, if you're going to be diplomatic, that got out. Yeah, he posted on his Facebook page a meme that was invented by an anti-Semitic meme invented by the alt-right that he recaptioned to attack Netanyahu's political opponents as part of some kind of conspiracy uh, internationally. He, ironically, the son of the Israeli prime minister is blaming an international conspiracy of Jews uh, for his political problems. He also- Not a good look. No, it's bad. Um, he also, like, and this is just really petty, but it illustrates the kind of person he is, got in a lot of trouble because he let his dog poop in a public park and didn't clean it up. And a woman who saw called him out on it, and then he, like, went after her. He wrote a Facebook message blaming the Israeli left for this whole thing, and the message included poop emojis and a middle finger, right? Like, this is the kind of guy we're talking about. In any event, the point is that he also isn't just, like, a random fail son. He, his father has credited him for some of his political ideas. Right. Right, like he's been brought into the administration and, and arguably groomed for political office at one point in the future. Uh, this isn't just picking on somebody who has a questionable private life. It's somebody who really is entangled in the affairs of state, as that the comments about, you know, my father paid your father sort of things illustrate. He seems to see the government as a tool for his personal protection and the advancement of his family's personal interests. Right, which is why his his statement that he made after all this came out is so absolutely ridiculous and unbelievable. Um, he said, you know, these remarks don't reflect who I am, blah, blah, blah. And then he said, I never took an interest in the natural gas framework agreement and never had any idea about its details. Yet somehow I know the son of the guy who's involved and the exact amount that was involved. And I know that my father was involved in getting this deal. But I had no idea about the details. Like, it's just absurd. It wasn't even like a credible denial. It was just, I was drunk. And he literally says, uh, I spoke nonsense about women and other things that were better left unsaid. Not that he doesn't believe those things. I probably just shouldn't have said that publicly or privately, but on tape. I mean, we try as best we can to not make everything in the world about or tied to Donald Trump. But there is something worth noting here, which is, you know, Zach, to your point, when Donald Trump was in Israel, a photo that was put out by the prime minister's official account was a photo of the two families having dinner. And in the photo, the person kind of standing center, like overlooking both couples was Yair Netanyahu. And as with Donald Trump, Benjamin Netanyahu was trying to prime him, if not for political success, certainly for business success. As with Trump, both of them, it's family, 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 and they'll protect family at all costs. And more specifically here, the Netanyahu statement about this was, this was a disgraceful attack by people in the security services, by the media. If that sounds familiar, it sounds familiar to hear somebody try to say, this is bad, but it's all kind of a deep state fake news thing. It explains in many ways why Donald Trump and Bibi Netanyahu are extraordinarily close, not just in terms of politics, as reflected when Trump said Jerusalem was the capital of Israel, as we've talked about in previous episodes. But 
personally. They both have a very similar view of family. They have a very similar view of criticism of their family. And in both cases, that's kind of their big Achilles heel. Well, there are longstanding and deep connections between the Israeli right and the American right. Um, so you, you've heard some commentators talk about the neoconification of the Israeli conservative movement, right, where they've gotten more hawkish and more interested in the kind of religious conservative cause that you saw in the United States, just ported over to a Jewish from a Christian context. Uh, and there are lots of different ways of talking about this. And Netanyahu has personally spent a lot of time in the United States and developed a lot of connections in the Republican Party. So the idea that there would be cross-pollination between the way that the GOP approaches politics and the way that the Israeli Likud party approaches politics is very far from crazy. In fact, it, it, it would make a lot of sense. And you see in some of Netanyahu's public statements that he apes Trump's language. That's been interpreted by some observers as a way of sucking up to Trump. It's equally plausible to interpret it as a way of porting over political tactics that were successful in the United States to an Israeli context. Right. I think also the story uh, at a much more fundamental level is a nice cautionary tale of why you maybe probably shouldn't involve your children in your political life um, or, you know, bring your children into the government directly. You know, we have two members of Trump's immediate family in the White House, um, you know, which means that their behavior, again, directly influences you know, the perception of Donald Trump. Uh, so far, that seems to be a more positive perception on the part of uh, Ivanka and, and Jared. But, you know, they they at least so far haven't gone out and, you know, been recorded talking about buying hookers and arguing about, you know, corrupt Russian natural gas deals. Um, but at the same but to, time, with Jared, like, that's pretty plausible. It's definitely right? <laughs> plausible. And, and I think in some ways that's a good place to close because what we're seeing in both of these countries is family being an Achilles heel. We're seeing business ties being Achilles heel. And we're seeing in the case of the U.S., Donald Trump is obviously historically unpopular. In the case of Israel, Bibi is seen, Netanyahu is seen as politically, Zach, as you were saying, politically very strong. But in both cases, it comes back to corruption. It comes back to what could bring them down is not horrible things they do in office that have to do with politics, horrible things they do that have to do with policy, horrible decisions they make that immiserate or cause poverty to their own people. It's corruption. And I think going forward in 2018, it's a theme that we'll be, we'll be watching the world over because you have autocrats everywhere who just intermix money and politics in Saudi Arabia, Israel, the U.S., and that's where we're in this new space where that could potentially both bring them down or cement their power and something we will look forward to, I think, uh, and discuss a lot over the course of the year. Uh, Jen Zek, thank you to both of you. Thank As you, always, Yochi. Thank you, Jen. Uh, I'm so happy to be treated politely. It's such a nice change. Meh. Yeah, there we go. That's the, <laughs> that's the treatment I was expecting. Um, thanks our, to our producer, Jillian Weinberger, to our engineer, Peter Leonard, to our social media manager, Julie Bogan, to all of you who listen and send us emails. If you are liking what you hear, come find us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, subscribe. You can find us on Stitcher and SoundCloud, everywhere else you listen to podcasts. Thank you all again, and we'll be with you next week. <laughs>